welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Hi, everyone. Thought I'd start off the episode by reading a podcast review from A Girl 79, who writes, quote, so informative. I'm so busy as a Patia advisor for over 100 public defenders that I am too short on time to read all the new cases. Love! Exclamation mark. Thank you so much, A Girl 79. Any and all reviews, five stars, of course, are well received and so helpful to the podcast. Thank you again. Also thought I'd mention that Benjamin Osario called me this week to discuss his case, Matter of Dingus, discussed last week on the podcast. Lucky for me, he believes I did the case justice. Fascinating case, including what happens next with that whole issue regarding whether trafficking in a non-CSA-controlled substance is a CIMT. Thanks for reaching out, Ben. Five cases for you all. First is Matter of Dang, published by the BIA. We meet again, BIA, this time in the realm of crimes of domestic violence. Mr. Dang is from Vietnam, and he's a lawful permanent resident of the United States. In 2017, he was convicted of misdemeanor domestic abuse battery with child endangerment in violation of Section 14,35.3i of the Louisiana Statutes, and he was sentenced to two months imprisonment. DHS placed him in removal proceedings, alleging that the crime made him removable as a crime of domestic violence, as defined at INA Section 237A2EI. This removability provision isn't discussed often on the podcast. I welcome the opportunity. Mr. Dang disagreed with DHS's accusation and filed two motions to terminate, which the immigration judge denied. But then the IJ granted Mr. Dang LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AA, meaning that Mr. Dang gets to keep his green card. And DHS didn't appeal the grant, so really, Mr. Dang and his counsel must really, really feel strongly in their belief that the conviction doesn't make Mr. Dang removable in the first place, because they risked it all and appealed the case themselves. And they won. The IJ was incorrect. 
the conviction is not a crime of domestic violence under immigration law. En route to its conclusion, the BIA clarified something that I think has been a bit murkier than it should be. To qualify as a crime of domestic violence, a state conviction must be, quote, a crime of violence as defined in 18 U.S.C. Section 16A, committed by a perpetrator who has a specified domestic relationship with the victim, end quote. So put another way, a conviction can't be a crime of domestic violence removability offense unless it matches the definition of an aggravated felony crime of violence, which in turn is defined by 18 U.S.C. Section 16A. The Section 16A analysis applies in full force to crimes of domestic violence. What's the difference between the two removability provisions, then? Well, a crime of domestic violence has that added requirement that the victim have a special domestic relationship with the perpetrator. So in that sense, it's more difficult for DHS to prove removability on this basis. However, the aggravated felony removability provision requires that the non-citizen have been sentenced to a term of imprisonment of at least one year, a requirement that the crime of domestic violence provision does not have. So in that sense, it's easier for DHS to establish the crime of domestic violence removability provision. Now here, Mr. Dane conceded that there was a domestic relationship with the victim. An analysis which, if not conceded, I believe, but I'm not entirely certain, is governed by the categorical approach. But let's put that all aside and save it for another day. With the domestic issue conceded, the question is narrow, using the categorical approach to Section 1435.3i of the Louisiana Statutes match the definition of a crime of violence at 18 U.S.C. Section 16a. And that question brings in a plethora of recent Supreme Court decisions, including U.S. v. Castleman, Stockling v. U.S., and although not mentioned here, the Supreme Court's Bourdain decision on mens rea issued last term. And quote, if a defendant can be convicted based on conduct that does not fit the definition of a crime of violence, then the statute as a whole, if indivisible, does not categorically define a crime of violence and cannot be the predicate for removal under Section 237A2EI, end quote. Just to be crystal clear. To satisfy that definition, for a state crime to be an immigration crime of violence, the state crime must categorically require the use of, quote, physical force, end quote. That is, the state crime must include physical force as an element to convict. The Supreme Court has also described that term as, quote, violent force, that is, force capable of causing physical pain or injury to another person, end quote. A statute that requires only, quote, offensive touching, end quote, for example, doesn't satisfy this definition. That's the Supreme Court's Johnson decision, by the way. Four years later in Castleman, the Supreme Court seemed to imply, albeit in a non-immigration context, that even minimal force would cut it when the crime is domestic in nature. But again, that was in another context, and that statute didn't expressly incorporate 18 U.S.C. Section 16A, which is exactly why here in this decision, the BIA held that the Castleman standard is, quote, inapplicable, end quote, to the crime of domestic violence removability provision, or for that matter, to aggravated felony crimes of violence. Quote, we must hew to the plain language of the statute Congress has enacted, end quote. And that statute incorporates Section 16A and Section 16A alone. Win one for the non-citizens. Then comes the Stokeling decision, again, not an immigration case, but relevant, which held that physical force includes all force, quote, necessary to overcome the slightest resistance of a victim, end quote. But still, the definition doesn't include criminal offenses that encompass acts with only the, quote, merest touching, end quote. 
That's not physical force. So then, what's the rule for physical force? Well, first, the BIA affirmed for the millionth time that the violent force analysis in all of these Armed Career Criminal Act decisions applies equally to the crime of violence definition at Section 16A, something the Supreme Court also said last year in Bourdain. Then, the BIA combined Johnson and Stokeling to hold that for the physical force inquiry, the quote, level of force is not satisfied by a battery statute that criminalizes mere offensive touching, but is satisfied by a robbery statute that requires proof of force sufficient to overcome the slightest resistance, end quote. I've seen easier to apply standards in my day, but whatever, it's a standard, and the BIA is doing its best with what it's got. Applying that standard to the Louisiana statute here, the domestic abuse battery crime doesn't meet it because Louisiana state courts and other binding sources have held that the statute encompasses simple battery. And quote, for over a century, Louisiana courts have held that simple battery may include even the most trifling or merely offensive touching, end quote. So it doesn't include the physical force required of crimes of violence or of crimes of domestic violence. The BIA cites a lot of other stuff in support, including a 1985 case called State v. Mitchell, the facts of which I won't get into lest I lose my PG rating, but suffice it to say, while the conduct was not violent, the touching was without question offensive. In so ruling, the BIA also amended its 2010 decision in matter of E. Velasquez. Case terminated. Mr. Dang never lost his green card in the first place. Congratulations Kenneth A. Mayu of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. For respondent. And that is Matter of Dang. Next is Bhaktabai Patel v. Garland, published by the Second Circuit on April 27, 2022. This case is about reinstatement, jurisdiction, and circuit authority. Skip ahead if you want, Mom. It's a heady one steeped in legalese, but I'll try to cut to the chase. Mr. Bhaktabai Patel is from India and was ordered removed in both 2010 and 2016. Unsure how that happened, the decision doesn't say, but he was physically removed, and then he re-entered the U.S. unlawfully in 2019. So DHS reinstated the 2016 final order of removal and sought to effectuate Mr. Bhaktabai Patel's removal on that basis. Mr. Bhaktabai Patel claimed a fear of return to India, but an IJ ultimately determined that it was not reasonable, meaning that Mr. Bhaktabai Patel could not even apply for withholding of his removal. That means his physical removal was again imminent. Mr. Bhaktabai Patel, however, petitioned the Second Circuit for review of his case. That's what we have here. Specifically, he challenged, quote, the decisions to reinstate his 2016 order and to find him ineligible for withholding of removal, end quote but the Second Circuit held that it didn't have jurisdiction to review such things, a conclusion that conflicts, at least in part, with cases from at least the Third, Fourth, and it appears, First, Fifth, and Ninth Circuits, and maybe more. And in so holding, the Second Circuit disagreed with not just Mr. Bhaktabai Patel, but Oil, which, quote, insisted we have jurisdiction to review this petition, end quote. It also disregarded a published Second Circuit decision on the very issue. Quintanilla Mejia v. Garland, issued just last year and discussed on episode 63 of the podcast, believing that even though that decision literally reviewed withholding-only proceedings like those sought here, quote, that opinion did not analyze whether a court has jurisdiction over such petitions, end quote, at least not directly. The panel believed its decision required by the INA's text. 
The INA requires that petitions for review of final orders of removal be filed within 30 days. That obviously didn't happen here. Mr. Bhaktabhai Patel's technical final order of removal was issued in 2016. And according to the court, another portion of the INA limits review to final orders of removal. That review, according to the court, does not include, quote, a decision that relates to a non-citizen's ultimate removal, but does not affect the validity of the conclusion that the non-citizen may or must be removed from the United States, end quote. Such as, say, a decision to reinstate a final order and physically remove the non-citizen. So, because Mr. Bhaktabhai Patel isn't really asking the court to review his final order of removal, and even if he was, it is many years untimely, the Second Circuit held that it couldn't review any of it. And to be clear, that not only included the no reasonable fear finding, but also DHS's decision to reinstate the final order of removal itself. Again, believing its review, pretty much in all contexts, limited to final orders of removal, the Second Circuit held that immigration law ties, quote, finality to the final stage of agency review, end quote, which in the case of reinstatement is the date the final administrative act to reinstate by DHS takes place. Or put another way, the date, quote, when the non-citizen chooses not to contest the decision, to reinstate, or if the non-citizen does contest it when the immigration officer reviews and rejects the non-citizen's objection, end quote. At that point, when the reinstatement decision becomes final, the 30-day clock to file a petition for review in the Second Circuit starts to run. And Mr. Bhaktabhai Patel didn't meet that. Implicit holding, though, had he filed within 30 days of DHS's final decision to reinstate, the Second Circuit would find jurisdiction to review at least the decision to reinstate. Although challenging just administrative decisions to reinstate a final order of removal will be very difficult to do, as it doesn't take much for DHS to satisfy the reinstatement regulatory requirements. Creating a bit of a Kafskiesque situation, the Second Circuit held that Mr. Bhaktabhai Patel's decision to pursue withholding of removal and the subsequent litigation over that issue before the IJ has no effect on his deadline to file a petition for review of DHS's initial decision to reinstate in the first place. So in effect, the Second Circuit would have Mr. Bhaktabhai Patel simultaneously petition for review DHS's decision to reinstate and, at the same time, try to obtain withholding of removal of that reinstated order before DHS and then the IJ, if necessary, which then the non-citizen could maybe seek review of by a separate, later, petition for review. Or maybe not. A footnote indicates that maybe the Second Circuit believes that it can't review any of this unless it's all petitioned for review to the Second Circuit within 30 days of the decision to reinstate. A bit unclear, but if that's the rule, it will be very difficult and often impossible to meet because withholding-only proceedings almost never conclude within 30 days of DHS's decision to reinstate a final order of removal. Whatever the holding, the Second Circuit also found non-binding another of its published decisions on the issue, Garavi Shanahan, which it believed relevantly abrogated by a subsequent Supreme Court decision. Again, this is a gong case for a few reasons. This latter stuff about not having to wait for the withholding-only issue to resolve before petitioning for review conflicts, for example, with Ninth and Tenth Circuit decisions, in addition to, it appears, Fifth and Eleventh Circuit precedent, and even Webster's Dictionary from 1993. The Second Circuit acknowledges that, quote, 
One might observe that our opinion produces a seemingly odd result in that we recognize that an illegal reentrant may obtain judicial review of DHS's decision to reinstate a prior order of removal, but simultaneously hold that a reentrant may not obtain judicial review of subsequent withholding only proceedings. End quote. However, the Second Circuit believes that quote, questionable precedent, end quote, combined with the statutory text, demands this conclusion notwithstanding the, quote, strong presumption favoring judicial review of administrative action, end quote. The Second Circuit then went on to explain, expanding on Justice Alito's decision in Thurisigium last term, why it is that, quote, illegal reentrants also lack colorable due process claims in the context of withholding-only decisions, end quote. Indeed, quote, due process is flexible, and it calls for such procedural protections as the particular situation demands, end quote. And immigration is certainly the front line of that flexibility. All of that means that Mr. Bhaktabhai Patel doesn't get review of any of it. A few things. To reach its conclusion in this case, the Second Circuit states that, quote, decisions made during withholding-only proceedings cannot qualify as orders of removal, end quote. Fair enough, and maybe so. After all, withholding by definition simply withholds but does not abrogate a final order of removal. And in reaching that holding, the Second Circuit relies on the Supreme Court's Nasrallah decision, a decision that used similar logic to hold that circuits have jurisdiction to review fact findings related to the denial of Convention Against Torture Protection. Ipso facto, therefore, as myself and many have been saying since Nasrallah two terms ago, circuits also have authority to review agency findings of fact related to the denial of withholding of removal under the INA. This Second Circuit decision is harsh for non-citizens, but it definitely supports that argument, and therefore might ultimately be a help. Honestly, at the end of the day, and even if the Second Circuit does not go in bonk, it's possible that whatever the Supreme Court says in a couple of weeks and that other Patel case that we're always talking about will affect this decision. To me, a lot of this jurisdiction stuff is in a bit of a holding pattern until the Supreme Court speaks this term. And then maybe we can start litigating these issues all over again. Finally, while we're with the court, the Second Circuit also held in a different case this week that a mere arrest can constitute a change in conditions such that a non-citizen previously granted bond from immigration detention can end up back in immigration detention. New York, New York. And that is Bhaktabhai Patel v. Garland. Moving on, we have Hernandez Ortiz v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on April 26, 2022. I promise the rest of the decisions aren't all as complicated as the last, but they are all equally adverse for non-citizens. Yes, indeed, the Ninth Circuit is finally back this week with two decisions, both authored by Judge Bress. This one is about motions to reopen, equitable tolling, and ineffective assistance of counsel. Mr. Hernandez-Ortiz, who may actually be named Mr. Brito, is from Mexico and entered the U.S. in 1987 without authorization. He lived here for a decade but was arrested for DUI in 1997, placed in removal proceedings, and was removed to Mexico. It appears that he attempted to re-enter the U.S. a few days later with a falsified green card containing the name Hernandez-Ortiz. That didn't work, and he was ordered removed again, and he was removed. He unlawfully re-entered a few days later without authorization and has been in the U.S. for the last 25 years. 
Apparently soon after this final unlawful entry, he contacted an attorney who apparently told him that he couldn't do anything for him, and that he should just wait for a change in immigration law. We're still waiting. But then in 2001, the attorney did tell him that he was eligible for a labor certification, presumably an I-140 that the attorney intended to file before 245I went away, and that if approved, could lead to LPR status. The I-140 was approved in 2006, but USCIS denied his adjustment of status application in 2010 due to his departures, the removal orders, and his fraudulent use of that green card. A new attorney filed to have the adjustment of status application reopen, which USCIS denied. Fast forward to 2013. A third attorney files a motion to reopen the 1997 order of removal so that Mr. Hernandez-Ortiz can apply for asylum and related relief, asserting a fear of drug cartels in Mexico, in part because as a teenager many years ago, he was, quote, interested in a potential career in law enforcement, and he shadowed his police officer brother-in-law, end quote. It would appear that this motion was not based primarily on changed country conditions. I say that because such a motion to reopen would have no time limitation. Instead, it appears that this was a regular motion to reopen, which must be filed within 90 days of the final order of removal, a motion that the IJBIA and Ninth Circuit therefore deemed 16 years untimely, unless Mr. Hernandez-Ortiz can establish that equitable tolling of that deadline was warranted for 16 years. How to do that? Well, one way is to show that the reason for the substantial delay was ineffective assistance of counsel. In this case, Mr. Hernandez-Ortiz essentially argued that those first two attorneys were ineffective for not filing a motion to reopen themselves. The IJ and the BIA denied those motions. And in this decision, the Ninth Circuit held that the agency did not abuse its discretion. Now true. Ineffective assistance of counsel can result in equitable tolling and reopening in the Ninth Circuit. But as a first step, and quote, as a procedural matter, a non-citizen must satisfy the requirements set forth in matter of Lazada, end quote, the BIA's seminal 1988 decision. And those requirements include the filing of a bar complaint against prior counsel, among other things. It's serious stuff. And I'll just stop to note that I'm nearly positive that strict Lazada compliance, including the filing of a bar complaint, is not required in the Ninth Circuit in certain circumstances. But I don't have those cases in front of me right now, and so, at the risk of being Lazada'd myself, please don't take my word for it. In any event, it's always safer to comply with matter of Lazada. Which actually, and a bit astonishingly to me given the claim presented here, is what Mr. Hernandez-Ortiz did. He filed bar complaints against those two attorneys for failing to file untimely motions to reopen for him, twice ordered removed, to present an untimely asylum claim. But even with bar complaints filed and counsel's reputation tarnished, a non-citizen must still establish that counsel's conduct was, quote, egregious, end quote, and that the non-citizen suffered, quote, substantial prejudice, end quote, meaning that, quote, counsel's performance was so inadequate that the outcome of the proceeding may have been affected by the alleged violation, end quote. An attorney's, quote, tactical choice, end quote, is almost never going to be an effective assistance of counsel, quote, even if the choice turned out to be unwise, end quote. It doesn't stop a bar complaint, though. Anyone can file one, and Matter of Lazada actually encourages it. So first here, it doesn't appear that either of the first two attorneys could have filed timely motions to reopen. Therefore, said the Ninth Circuit, it's pretty hard to say that failing to file an untimely motion to reopen that's not alleging changed country conditions is ineffective assistance of counsel. 
To the contrary, the filing of one might end up in the non-citizen being physically removed. Plus, prior counsel pursued other actions, indicating that the failure to file an untimely motion to reopen was a tactical decision. Nor did Mr. Hernandez-Ortiz show that he had a decent shot of succeeding on his motions, meaning that he couldn't establish the required prejudice either. Now true, Mr. Hernandez-Ortiz, through third counsel, did also allege separately that a change in country conditions had occurred in Mexico such that he now warranted asylum and related relief, a showing that, again, if established, would succeed in reopening because it has no time deadline. All that must be shown is a material change in country conditions based on previously unavailable evidence establishing prima facie eligibility for the relief or protection. But as we always talk about on the podcast, that's no easy task either, and here it was not met. For example, the quote, evidence of the alleged threats and harassment from drug cartels was available in 1997 and could have been discovered or presented in his initial removal proceedings, end quote. And to the extent that there was an uptick in violence, Mr. Hernandez-Ortiz did not show that it transformed his claim from a non-viable one to a viable one. Indeed, right, he's claiming that he had a viable claim in 1997 and 2001, hence the ineffective assistance of counsel. Just saying. So, the Ninth Circuit affirmed denial of the motion to reopen. And here's some standards for you. So the Ninth Circuit does note what it has found egregious in the past. They, quote, typically involve situations in which counsel's conduct effectively prevented the petitioner from pursuing relief, end quote. It includes, but has not necessarily been limited to, attorneys telling their clients of the wrong date for their hearing, giving, quote, dead wrong, end quote, legal advice, the failure to file documents in support of relief for no justifiable reason, the failure to timely appeal, and fraud upon the client. There are standards in this decision for the truly ineffective assistance of counsel cases. If, of course, anyone listening is interested in filing such a motion in the Ninth Circuit against literally any attorney besides myself. And if you find such a complaint filed against you in the Ninth Circuit, pages 11 to 12 describe the kind of attorney actions that are not ineffective assistance of counsel. So there you go. And that is Hernandez-Ortiz v. Garland. Sticking with the Ninth Circuit and Judge Bress, we have Gutierrez Zavala v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on April 26, 2022. This decision is also about motions to reopen, although this time in the reinstatement context. Mr. Gutierrez Zavala was admitted to the U.S. as a lawful permanent resident in 1988, but he lost his status in removal proceedings and was removed due to a burglary conviction. A California conviction, by the way, that I believe is directly no longer an aggravated felony due to the Supreme Court's Session v. DeMaia decision. But that decision came much later, and Mr. Gutierrez Zavala was removed to Mexico in 2003. He re-entered unlawfully that same year, and in 2019, DHS discovered him and reinstated the prior order of removal, even though by then, again, the conviction wasn't an aggravated felony anymore. Just saying, DHS. To avoid this fate, Mr. Gutierrez Zavala argued that his attorney in 2003 was ineffective in 2003 by failing to file a brief with the Ninth Circuit. Mr. Gutierrez Zavala brought an ineffective assistance of counsel motion to reopen, requesting that the 90-day filing deadline be equitably told. He also begged the BIA to exercise its sua sponte authority and reopen proceedings on its own, because his conviction was no longer an aggravated felony, 
and he shouldn't have lost his green card in the first place. Relying on Ninth Circuit precedent, the BIA held that it had jurisdiction to consider the motion to reopen, notwithstanding DHS's reinstatement of proceedings, and then denied the motion on the merits. But actually here, the Ninth Circuit believes that the BIA went too far even there. The Ninth Circuit held that the BIA didn't have jurisdiction to even consider the motion. INA Section 241A5 states that once reinstated, removal proceedings are, quote, not subject to being reopened or reviewed, end quote. Now, in its 2020 Cuenca v. Barr decision, the Ninth Circuit held that the provision, quote, unambiguously bars reopening a reinstated prior removal order, end quote. And Cuenca distinguished that other Ninth Circuit precedent, holding that that precedent was a petition for review of a reinstatement order itself not an appeal of a denial of a motion to reopen following reinstatement. The former apparently can be challenged, but the latter, a challenge to a denial of a motion to reopen following reinstatement, cannot be challenged, and I guess cannot even be made before an immigration judge. So again, that's not the rationale that the BIA used here. And even though the Ninth Circuit, and any circuit really, can't usually deny a petition for review based on a reason not applied by the BIA, that's what we call the Chenery Doctrine. Quote, the Chenery Doctrine has no application where the agency was required to reach a necessary result. End quote. Or put another way, quote, there is an exception to Chenery based upon subjective certainty with respect to the outcome of the agency decision upon remand. End quote. The BIA's lack of jurisdiction is one such circumstance, particularly where there is a circuit precedent directly on point. Mr. Gutierrez-Zavala's petition was therefore denied based on a finding that the BIA shouldn't have decided it in the first place. So, a bit of a scary ruling for fans of the Chenery Doctrine, but then again, it can be argued that it's narrowed to cases that are simply about BIA and IJ jurisdiction, or where there is literally circuit precedent directly on point. Here's something I've been holding for a while. So assuming that this decision was not about reinstatement, or maybe even if it was, all of this could have been avoided if the BIA had exercised its sua sponte authority to reopen proceedings based on a recognition that Mr. Gutierrez-Zavala was never convicted of an aggravated felony in the first place, because of Sessions v. Maya. Now I understand that there are lines of cases out there holding that mere changes in case law should not result in reopening. But those same lines of cases have an exception for fundamental changes in case law. And what's more fundamental than the Supreme Court saying in Amaya that 18 U.S.C. Section 16b is unconstitutional? To quote the Supreme Court in Rivers v. Roadway Express, quote, A judicial construction of a statute is an authoritative statement of what the statute meant before as well as after the decision of the case giving rise to that construction, end quote. So really, DeMaia held what 16b always was, unconstitutional. Something to consider. And that is Gutierrez Zavala v. Garland. That brings us to Salat v. Garland, published by the 8th Circuit on April 28, 2022. This case is about deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture. Mr. Salat is from Somalia and entered the United States in 2012 as a refugee at 17 years old. He became an LPR two years later, but he suffers, quote, from mental illnesses including schizophrenia, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder, end quote. 
In 2017, he was convicted of making terroristic threats in violation of Minnesota Statute Section 609.713, Subdivision 1. I believe this is the same or a similar statute found to be a CIMT in the BIA decision, Matter of Salad. Anyway, back to Mr. Salat. He was also later convicted of assault in the fifth degree, with two or more previous convictions in three years, in violation of Minnesota Statute Section 609.224, Subdivision 1, and 4B. DHS placed him in removal proceedings, alleging that he'd been convicted of CIMTs and at least one aggravated felony. Mr. Salat conceded removability, and he applied for asylum and related relief. But during proceedings, Mr. Salat appealed his assault conviction in state court, and so, a second IJ reversed the first IJ's aggravated felony finding, because the conviction, after all, was no longer final. Without an aggravated felony, Mr. Salat was not per se barred from asylum, and the second IJ granted the relief. Sneaky stuff. DHS appealed, though, and while on appeal, Mr. Salat lost his criminal appeal, meaning that, once again, he had the assault conviction. This time it was final, the case got remanded, and the IJ granted only deferral of removal under the CAT by written decision on remand, primarily based on what would happen to Mr. Salat in Somalia due to his mental health. DHS appealed again. They do not like Mr. Salat, and the BIA reversed the IJ, believing that the IJ clearly erred. And to the Eighth Circuit, we come. The court first held that the BIA didn't err in overturning the IJ at least not in this case, on the issue of whether Mr. Salat would more likely than not be institutionalized in a Somalia mental health facility, because, for example, quote, the IJ cited no evidence as to the number of Somalis institutionalized and how Somalis are admitted to public facilities, end quote. Plus, as the Eighth Circuit seems to note, Mr. Salat didn't have an expert to establish this fact, the likelihood of institutionalization, making it even more difficult for him to meet his burden. The Eighth Circuit also did not disturb the BIA's finding that the evidence did not show that Mr. Salat would more likely than not be forcefully evicted from a camp for internally displaced people in Somalia. However, the Eighth Circuit seems to believe it likely that Mr. Salat, whether due to his mental illness or otherwise, will end up in an IDP camp, and remanded back to the BIA for, quote, findings regarding Mr. Salat's likely treatment in an IDP camp and what part of the IDP camp experience would constitute torture. End quote. Plus, it looks like there might be evidence to support a finding that Mr. Salat would be forcefully evicted to areas controlled by al-Shabaab due to his mental illness. So the case was sent back for BIA analysis. My bad. There was some non-citizen good remaining to be discussed this episode. Judge Culleton concurred to address Judge Kelly's concurrence. And Judge Kelly believes in concurrence that actually, the BIA can't address this issue because the IJ didn't address it first, meaning that actually, it all needs to go back to the IJ. For the BIA to do otherwise, according to Judge Kelly, would be improper fact-finding. We shall see. Congratulations, Mr. Salat and counsel. And how about this weird thing? Here's a very specific footnote to end the episode with. Apparently, a lot of the mental health evidence submitted had to do with Somaliland, and not Somalia proper, and so the BIA questioned the evidence's relevance. However, quote, While Somaliland is a self-declared republic, the United States does not recognize its sovereignty and instead considers Somaliland to be within Somalia, end quote. Accordingly, the Eighth Circuit, quote, regards as relevant record evidence about Somaliland's mental health facilities, end quote. 
and that goes for all Somalia-based relief claims. Interesting to remember, for all of you who tangle with cases from Somalia, neglect Somaliland at your own peril. And that is Salat B. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.